In his uh, latest book, A Generous Justice, uh, Tim Keller tells the story of a young Christian man that he met at a theological seminary. Uh, The man's name was Mark Gornick, and Keller writes this. When I was a professor at a theological seminary in the mid-80s, one of my students was a young man named Mark Gornick. One day we were standing at the copier, the photocopier, and he told me that he was about to move into Sandtown, one of the poorest and most dangerous neighbourhoods in Baltimore. I remember being quite surprised when I, when I asked him why, he, he said simply, to do justice. It had been decades since any white people had moved into Sandtown. For the first couple of years, it was touch and go. Mark told a reporter, the police thought I was a drug dealer and the drug dealers thought I was a police officer, so for a while there I didn't know who was going to shoot me first. Yet over the years, Mark, along with the leaders in the community, established a church and a comprehensive set of ministries that have slowly transformed the neighbourhood. And Mark Gornick was concerned for justice for the most vulnerable, poor and marginalised in society. Many of us here might say we're bothered too about social justice, but where Mark Gornick differs from most of us is that he made long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve the most downtrodden in society. He, he acted for them even though it cost him. Now that's really grabbed me this week as I've been studying uh, to prepare uh, for this sermon. It seems to me that almost every human being who walks this planet has a sense of a right and wrong, a, a concern for justice. It's something that is built into us, it seems. We're made in God's image and God is the God of the vulnerable He has revealed himself as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God cares about justice and having been made in God's likeness, we too have this sort of inbuilt concern for justice. The problem is the image of God in us has been marred. We are sinful and because we're sinful, largely we are only ever really bothered about justice when we've been unfairly treated. Do you notice that? Oh, for sure, we might feel some sense of moral outrage when we see injustice on the television news, but it rarely moves most of us to act. At least not to act as Mark Gornick did in a way that really costs us. The exception is when we feel that we've been wronged. Then we not only feel the sense of moral outrage, we fight for justice, for our reputation, for our rights, for justice to be done. And if we believe um, in him, if we do believe in him, we cry out to the God of justice to act on our behalf as well. Now that's what we see as we turn to the book of Malachi. And uh, we come to our first point on the handout. Where is the God of justice? It's a week five of our seven-week trip to ancient Israel, 400 years BC. And this week we hear the voice of the people, the man on the street, the view from the pew. Now, Having said that, it is Malachi that we meet first God's messenger has an announcement. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. He says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Uh, In Tesco's, I saw a mum shopping with two children in tow. Many of you will have seen this uh, scenario. A little girl sitting in the trolley, her little boy, four or five years old, I think, maybe a bit younger, dragging his feet behind, looking as miserable as sin, bored stiff at the whole shopping experience seems that uh, that happens to little boys as well as to big boys. Anyway, there he was, whining and moaning all the way round the shop. Mum was remarkably patient, asking him from time to time to stop his whinging. 
But somewhere between the baked beans and the crunchy nut cornflakes, the little lad lad pushed his mum too far. His bottom lip stuck out. He stamped his feet and then he threw himself on the floor in a fit of rage and patient mum's patience were in shreds. Will you just be quiet? Get up! Behave! I am tired of your moaning! The little lad had driven her to, driven her to distraction. Now desperately, God's people have done the same with the Lord. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Now look, it is quite something to be able to push the Lord that far. He is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is patient, compassionate. You've got to go some to drive the Lord to distraction, but that's what the people of Malachi's day had done. Look what they're saying about him in the second half of verse 17. They were saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them. That is, he's pleased with evil people. Or where is the God of justice? Where's the God of justice, they say? If God really is a good God, if he's just, why doesn't he act to deal with all the terrible things in the world? That's the sort of thing they were saying. If God is a good God, why doesn't he do something about the suffering in Haiti, the corruption in Nigeria, the plight of the oppressed in China? It's the sort of thing unbelievers say to me when I get into conversation about Christian things. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Why does he let innocent people suffer? Why did he allow me to suffer? Where is the God of justice? Seeing innocent people suffer is hard enough, but it becomes all the more galling. It's even more difficult to stomach when we see evil people prosper. As we look around at the injustice in the world, it could well appear to us, verse 17, that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. Because evildoers seem to prosper. Bad people seem to get away with murder. Cowboy builders, rogue traders, tax evaders, dishonest employers, corrupt governments, oppressive regimes. Often in this world, it seems that all goes well for those who don't play by the rules. They flourish. And so it seems that God is pleased with wicked people. Where is the God of justice? It's a sort of complaint that I've heard many times from the man on the street. And it is a question that needs to be addressed. We shouldn't ignore this conundrum that is thrown up by this topsy-turvy world that we live in. This is a very real question that needs very careful answers when unbelievers ask it. But here, it's not unbelievers who are asking the question. See, in verse 17, it is God's own people saying these things. And they're not actually asking a reasonable question. This is a vicious accusation. They're saying God likes evil in verse 17. Now, what prompted their slander? We don't know. Malachi doesn't tell us, but we can can guess we can be almost certain that the reason the Israelites were so bothered about this was because they felt they had been hard done by because we're always bothered by injustice when we feel that we've been the ones who've been wronged. Why were they asking it? Well, next week in chapter 3, in the second half of chapter 3, we'll see how Israel was going through hard times economically. Austerity measures had kicked in since their crops had been blighted by pests. So maybe the Israelites were speaking like this because they saw their pagan neighbours doing so well and they were saying, we're God's people and we're struggling to make ends meet and these evil pagans have life so easy. 
Where is the justice in that? For them there was only one explanation, verse 17. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. He's pleased with them. Well, exactly why the Israelites said these things, we don't know. But we do know they said it over and over again, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. They just kept banging on about it. On and on they went. They just wouldn't let it lie. And look, what they were saying really was outrageous. Right through their history, God had revealed himself as a God of justice. Listen to just two passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 146, verses 7 to 9, says this, The Lord upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Do you see that? The Lord cares for the downtrodden. He loves the righteous. He frustrates the wicked. He is against the wicked. But the Israelites of Malachi's day were saying the opposite. That's Psalm 146. Take Job 29, verses 12 to 17. The Lord says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Repeatedly, God revealed himself as a God of justice and kindness and and mercy, as a God who showed his hatred towards evil. He'd not only said words along those effects, he'd acted in those ways. And Israel's history was full of it. So for God's people to be saying such things about God really is out of order. This is slander. The news of the world wouldn't get away with publishing this sort of statement without being sued for libel. And yet the Israelites, God's own people, repeatedly made this outrageous accusation against their God. And so the Israelites had wearied the Lord with their words. And now, amazingly, amazingly, despite being so appallingly treated, the Lord condescends to graciously answer his people. And so we come to the second point. The God of justice will come. See, look at chapter 3, verse 1. This is how the Lord answers. See, I I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see what is going on here? As the people of God cried out for the God of justice, here in verse 1, the God of justice promised to come to them. I will come. Now, in order to understand verse 1, you need to see there are two messengers. There's not just one, there's two. It's quite simple when you, when you it's quite straightforward when you look at it carefully, but just so you're not confused. The first messenger is uh, in the first sentence of the verse, and he comes to prepare the way for the Lord. You see that in verse 1? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now that verse is quoted in Mark chapter 1 and verse 2 that we had read earlier. And so we know that the first messenger is John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist is the messenger sent by the Lord to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. So Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is pointing to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus. And as an aside, it shows us that Jesus is none other than the Lord God Almighty. Do you see here? It it is the Lord Almighty speaking in verse 1. See, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me, says the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus then is God. So Jesus was the fulfilment of this prophecy. And in the second half of verse 1, the Lord promised to go to the temple. Do you see it there in Mark chapter 11? Uh, You see it there in verse 1. And then in Mark chapter 11, Jesus went to the temple. And the irony mustn't be missed. These people called out for the God of justice because they felt hard done by. And the God of justice replied by saying, I'm coming, but in the first instance I'm going to the temple, the very heart of Judaism. You're calling for justice I'm going to come to you, to the temple, because there is gross injustice there. And so when Jesus arrived at the temple, he turned over the tables of the money changers. He acted in judgment on those who were making profit out of the temple, those who were making money out of the most vulnerable in society. Jesus judged the very people who cried out for justice. Look over the page at verse 5. See what he says in verse 5? So I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me. By the way, that do not fear me is I'm coming to judge, but don't fear me. It's not not, don't fear me. It's it's another problem. It's, It's all of that and they don't fear me as they should. Verse 5 is a horrible list. But it's what was going on in Israel in Malachi's day and it's what was going on in Israel in Jesus' day and it goes on among God's people today. We've seen it, haven't we, already in chapter 1. God's people showing contempt for the Lord. Not fearing the Lord, but ignoring his laws. Breaking his commandments by committing adultery and lying and coveting. Ignoring his commands to care for the most vulnerable in society, asylum seekers and widows and orphans, flouting his laws by taking advantage of the poor, defrauding labourers of their wages. And when Jesus came, he judged those who ignore God and those who flout his law. You see the point here with the people of God asking, where is the God of justice? And the Lord answers, you wonder where I am, you want to see my justice, I'm coming to you. It's a great warning, isn't it? Be careful before you cry for justice. As we get all hot and bothered about the injustices in our lives, as we feel this great sense of moral outrage for the things done against us, as we cry out for justice, the Lord looks at us and says, I'll come near to you for judgment. And maybe he says something like this, how many of you are causing injustice in the world? How many of you are the cause of it? And what are you doing about all the injustice around you? How many of you are really bothered about justice so that you're prepared to make long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve the most downtrodden in society like Mark Gornick? So yes, Jesus came to judge religious hypocrisy. And if that was a surprise for the Jews of Jesus' day, here's another surprise. 
It's a wonderful surprise. Although Jesus came to judge them, they weren't destroyed. So look back to verse 2. As the Lord says he's going to come to his temple, then he says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And 400 years BC, there's only one answer to this question, no one. No one can endure the day of God's coming. No one can stand when God appears. Except look now at verse 6. I'm sorry we're on two pages, we have to keep flipping back and forth, but look at verse 6. And verse 6 is part of this section. I won't go into why now, but you can ask me later. But look at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And so the third point on the handout over the page, the God of justice is the God of mercy. Yes, God is a God of justice, but as we read in verse 1, the God of justice who may desire is also the messenger of the covenant. The God who made a promise with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and here in verse 6, crucially, Jacob. Now, if you were here as we began this series, do you remember we thought about Jacob back in chapter 1, verse 2? Jacob was Isaac's second-born twin, the one who had no rights to God's blessing because he wasn't the firstborn. Jacob, the one who who didn't earn God's blessing, he was chosen in the womb. And most importantly for us tonight, Jacob was the one who did nothing to deserve God's blessing. Quite the opposite. Jacob was a deceiver, a scoundrel, a fraudster. He would have sat very neatly in with the people listed in verse 5. Yet God made a covenant with him. That's how God works. That's the gospel we know, a gospel of grace. The grace that means that God loves me anyway. And verse 6, because the Lord does not change, when he's made a covenant with his people, he won't destroy them. So yes, the Lord came to judge. And yes, he did speak out against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And yes, he did walk into the temple and turn over the tables of the money changers. And yes, he did speak against all those described in verse 5. But as he came to his people for judgment, they weren't destroyed, verse 6. And that is the great surprise of verses 2 and 3. Look again at the question in verse 2. Who can stand before God when he appears? The surprise answer is that his chosen people can because, verse 2, Jesus came to be the refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Now, firstly, the launderer's soap. It is as it sounds. Jesus came for a great spiritual clean-up. You only take things to the laundrette when they're dirty, don't you? Jesus looks at his people and he knows we're dirty. He knows we need cleaning, cleansing. It's been demonstrated brilliantly this evening in the waters of baptism. Water for cleansing from sin. We deserve judgment, but Jesus cleanses us. And the waters of baptism are a symbol of that. A symbol of all that Jesus did for us as he died on the cross, taking our punishment and cleansing us. I have this remarkable ability to paint myself in a good light uh, whenever I recall incidents in my life. When I tell Caroline about conversations I had during the day, I always seem to tell the story in a way that makes it sound as if I was the really kind and gracious person in the conversation. I seem to be able to remember the details in a way that always suggests that I was right. 
when I feel heard, I have this ability to tell the story so that I really do look like the innocent victim. And so I have this skill for forgetting the details that might make me look mean or unkind or aggressive or rude or selfish. Or I can kid myself that I'm not really dirty, that I'm the innocent victim. But just imagine if all my conversations, all my actions, my whole life was recorded here on this DVD so that I didn't tell you my life story with all my biases thrown in, but so that you saw it as it really was. And imagine we were going to watch it tonight. Imagine it was a DVD of your life, not the edited highlights, not the best bits, not the story the way you'd like to tell it, but your whole life, warts and all. Well, no doubt there'd be much to celebrate, loving relationships, great achievements, acts of kindness, moments of generosity and selflessness, perhaps a flourishing career, but honestly, there would be thousands of things that, would be, that you'd be horribly embarrassed about. Things we'd be mortified should anyone else see them. Things that are, are buried so deep inside you that nobody else knows about, not even your closest friend or even your spouse. The skeletons in the cupboard, the things we do behind closed doors when the lights go out, the times when we hurt others, when we said unkind things, when we walked away from people in need, all the times when we are the cause of great injustice. And not just the things we've said and done that we regret, but the things we should have done. The times we could have helped the poor and the marginalised and the downtrodden and the most needy in society. The times when we could have helped those people and decided not to, just walked on by. If that was my life and it was recorded on here, it would be a nightmare if you saw it. A nightmare. And I don't say that for effect. See, the truth is, I don't need justice, I need forgiveness. Because I've been the one who's caused pain to others and hurt others. And the wonderful news of the Gospel is this, as Jesus died on the cross, he died to wipe clean all the dirt in my life. To clean up the DVD. Not just to make me a better person in the future, but to wipe clean the record of my dirty past. That's what this baptism service has been about. Let me tell you, it's a wonderful thing to know that I am clean before God. It's a wonderful thing to know that before God I feel no guilt and no shame because Jesus took all the guilt and shame. It's a wonderful thing. He came as a launderer's soap. So the New Testament can write this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of Jesus' death now, when God looks at my life, all the dirt has been wiped clean, edited out. So Isaiah can write these words, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what God did at the cross. That's what the waters of baptism point towards. Is God pleased with evil, as the people said in chapter 2, verse 17? No, he hates evil. He hates evil in your life and mine. And to deal with it, it costs Jesus his life. Look at the cross and you'll see just how much God hates evil. You'll see just how evil evil is. Is God just? Yes, he is. He won't just let people off. Sin matters. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He comes in judgment. He hates evil. But at the cross, 
Because he's a covenant-keeping God, he takes the judgment upon himself and washes us clean, as white as snow. Isn't it wonderful? Jesus came as a launderous soap to cleanse us from all the past. But it doesn't stop there. Yes, the launderous soap, but secondary, secondly, that the refiner's fire. Look again at verse, verse 3. Who can stand when he appears, for he will be like a refiner's fire. Verse 3, he'll sit as a refiner and purify of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. I remember when I first understood this, it was, it was really moving. The refiner sits over a pot of, of molten metal. And as the temperature rises, so, so the dross rises to the top. And as all the impurities and imperfections rise to the top, the refiner carefully scoops off all the dross, not taking away any of the precious metal, carefully scooping off all the dross. And he knows when his job is done. He knows when the metal is pure because when the metal cools down and the impurities have been removed, as he bends down and looks over into this great big metal pot, he sees only his own reflection. That's what Jesus is doing with his people, with you and me. Bringing the dross in our lives to the surface, showing us what we're really like, and that's not a pleasant and, and a nice experience, but he does it so that he can remove all the gunk in our lives, so he can purify us, so that increasingly when he looks at us, what does he see? He sees reflection of himself. That's what Jesus wants for you and me. He wants us to be conformed to the likeness of his son, says the Bible. And sometimes he does that by taking us through hard times, putting us through the fire so that the dross rises to the surface. A good friend of mine said to me, you know what you really are when you're under pressure. He explained, when everything's going well in life, when, when the sun is shining, when my health's good, when I'm enjoying success in my job, my relationships are happy, when the pressure's off, I can be as pleasant and as nice as the next person. It's when the pressure's on that I discover what I'm really like. You know what you really are when you're under pressure. And so the Lord, yes, sometimes puts us through the mill. He turns up the heat so that the dross rises to the top so that he can scoop it off and get rid of it. So at the cross, Jesus cleanses us from the past, the launderous soap, and by the work of his Holy Spirit, he refines us until we are a reflection of Jesus. And as that happens, then as we read halfway through verse 3, that then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Now for those of you who have been with us over the last couple of weeks, what a contrast from chapters 1 and 2. No longer the second-rate offerings of chapter 1 that demonstrated their contempt for the Lord. In Christ, the Lord changes us so that we bring pure and acceptable offerings to him. That comes about by being in the refiner's fire where the temperature rises. I think as we've looked at this little book over these last few weeks, we've we felt the heat. As we've sat here listening to God speak to us from this little book, it's been uncomfortable. But the Lord deals with us like that to get rid of the impurities in our lives so that you'll have a people who are living sacrifices for him. See, as God takes us through those hard times, maybe, maybe one of the greatest marks of his purifying work in us is that we don't question God's love as these people did. 
Maybe one of the greatest marks that he's doing a fantastic work in us is that we don't cry out for the God of justice, but that we rejoice in the God of mercy because we know what we're like. And through those hard times, a great mark that he's doing a work in us is that we look deeply at our lives and see the way we are the cause of injustice and we allow him through it all to refine us so that we'd be a people who are really concerned for justice. Not just calling for God to judge others, but acting for justice ourselves, like Mark Gornick, living for others so that it costs. Being ready to make long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve the downtrodden. Doing things that make a difference in other people's lives. Putting God first and neighbour second and ourselves last because we've been cleansed from the past and empowered to live differently in the future. Wouldn't that be wonderful if that's how we were? That's what God wants to do with us. Let's now pray that he would. Let's pray. We thank you, our Lord and God.